Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Hello and welcome to Headliner Radio, where we are delighted to be joined by the incredible Ron and Russell Mayo of Sparks. For the past 50 years, Sparks' output has been as innovative and inventive as it has been prolific, influencing a vast array of artists down the years. And later this month, the first ever official documentary film about their career, The Sparks Brothers, directed by Edgar Wright, is set to be released. Ron and Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you both? And where are you joining us from? Uh, we're, uh, it's a pleasure to be on uh, on with you. And uh, the answer to the second part is we're in, we're in quarantine now, so... Uh, yeah, plenty of time for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you, have, have you just returned uh, from Cannes? Because we, before we talk yeah, about the Sparks yeah. Brothers, we should mention the the, the uh, success of your other film-related project, Annette, which um, oh, one. Yeah, we, two- we got back on on Sunday, and it was you know Cannes was just an amazing experience. Uh, it was it was our, the the movie musical that we had written. Uh, called the net was the opening night film at the festival. And, you know, we were kind of flabbergasted when they said that that was going to be the case. And just the reaction after the showing, it was like a, you know, it was a five minute standing ovation, you know, and we felt so good, you know, obviously for ourselves, but just, just for Leo's Carrick's who had stuck with the project for eight years. And so, you know, we really, we really think it's a really, special film and a kind of a, a new way of doing a movie musical. We're so happy too, that uh, they managed to corral all of the actors from Annette came to the, to the red carpet ceremony on the opening night. So was, uh, Adam driver was there and he, he had to pull himself away from shooting a film in the States. So he came over just for the night stayed overnight. So he was there and also uh, Marianne Cotillard, who's the lead female actress in it and uh, Simon Helberg, the third uh, character in the, in the film and as well as Leos, the director. So it was really special evening for us to be on this red carpet in Cannes, um, something that we've kind of always, you know, dreamed about and imagined and it was kind of beyond what we expected. Wow. I mean, congratulations uh, on the success of the film. Uh, How did it feel uh, to be, to be at Cannes, to be, part of that world and like you said it's been in the making for a, for a number of years now so did it was it everything you you expected it would be how, how did it feel to actually be there and then see the film celebrated in in such a way well it was actually even beyond what we expect i mean the only other time we've ever been to Cannes was eight years ago and it was the time where we actually met leos carex and uh we weren't trying to we had this project just in our back pocket, there was going to be the next Sparks album. Is Annette just there was going to be a a, uh, a theatrical presentation, but a uh, a narrative musical th- theater piece that the two of us would be in and one other character, and that we would go on tour with. And then when we got back to LA after meeting Leo Sweet, he had used one of our earlier songs, "How Are You Getting Home?" in in Holy Motors, the previous film of his too. Uh, and that, and so we decided just to send it to him to see what he thought. Uh, and he he reacted favorably. He said he needed a little time to just decide. But he, in a couple of weeks, he got back and said, "I'd really like to direct this." So you know, the the whole experience is strange because the only two times we've ever been there are in connection with this 
this one project the first time meeting the future director of the film and then the second time it's the uh, opening night film at the festival yes yeah, must have been quite a remarkable experience um so we should move on to the sparks brothers um which is the brilliant new documentary uh directed by edgar wright um and i mean first of all i, I wanted to ask you what it was that convinced you to to give this project the green light if you like you know it's the first time a documentary of this kind has been made about the band in you know 50 years um and you've always been quite a private and mysterious band and was there anything about this that that you know set you on edge and made you a little bit uncomfortable about going down this path or when you knew that it was edgar wright that was going to be at the helm did that that help uh, to get you on board what was the process of of getting this film made yeah, well, it was precisely that, that Edgar Wright was uh, to be the director, because we had had a few other offers through the years to do a documentary, and we just felt that either the director wasn't maybe the right director or the kind of angle of the documentary wasn't kind of doing justice to what we felt was uh, the important elements of of Sparks to convey in a documentary. And so when, when Edgar had approached us after one of our shows in Los Angeles, he, he lives, shares his time in LA and London. Um, he, he had said, you know, there, there has to be a documentary about sparks. It's just far too long for, for um, your band to not have a documentary. And when he, when he, proposed doing it we were just kind of like over the moon because we we were real fans of his his films and we thought that if there could ever be a, a visual sort of equivalent to what we do musically that Edgar would kind of be able to be the person to to be able to do that and he also convinced us too that the documentary was going to be um equally focusing on all of the eras of sparks that, you know, sometimes in the past, some people say, well, this is the golden era of sparks, or that's the golden era of sparks. And then, then the other, you know, 18 albums are lumped into five minutes of a discussion. But Edgar felt that, that all 25 of our albums were equally important, even if they weren't commercially successful, that they all are part of the, the long saga and journey that, that we've been, through and so he convinced us that that was going to be a major focus of the of the documentary um and you know so with all those kind of elements involved and then and then later on we found out that um he has a a large rolodex apparently of uh (laughs) of people (laughs) phone numbers so he phone numbers and email addresses so he he reached out to a lot of you know people that either newer Sparks fans that are in the creative community or else that he suspected might be Sparks fans. And so he assembled this cast of just really phenomenal musicians, actors, TV producers, and writers that all came and were interviewed for the documentary and spoke out really eloquently about the what Sparks has meant to them. So that the combination of all those things was just... Uh, it was, it was uh, pretty phenomenal for us. And there was no way to, that we wouldn't uh, want to have this happen with, with Edgar. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you did you have any idea that he was such a huge fan of yours? And equally, were you aware? Because it's an incredible lineup of artists and personalities in this film who clearly hold hold you guys in incredibly high regard. Were you aware of that level of influence and inspiration that you've been to to, to this huge stellar lineup of of artists and performers? Not really. I mean, we we didn't have an idea that Edgar was a fan of ours. I mean, we always felt watching his films that there was a certain kind of kinship uh, stylistically, like just a real, I mean, obviously uh, music, pop music really is a driving force in all of his films, but, you know, we never spoke to him ever until, until the, the, the idea was broached about uh, doing a documentary. And as far as the other people, I mean, you know, a couple of the musicians maybe we might have known were had been fans, but just to, the kind of the breadth of not only the musicians but the the people that were writers and actors, we we really had no idea. I mean, we work in a really uh, kind of closed off way, and so just to you know to hear that from these people, uh, you know, was extraordinary, and it it made it made it more comfortable for us because we don't especially like talking about ourselves and to have these people who were incredibly eloquent about what it was that we were doing that affected them. It, 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 it was so much more effective in the final film. Mm. I mean, were you at all involved in the style of the film? Because it, you know, it feels like exactly the kind of, documentary that needed to be made about sparks and i was curious if you you know if, if there were any points where edgar wanted to take it in a certain way but you felt like it needed to stay down a particular route you know, how, how involved did you get with with the, the process of the making of the film no i mean to be honest we weren't that involved in the in that process because um you know edgar's sensibility seems so in tune with ours and also just talking with him before it was made just he's such a um a complete fan of the band but and has this knowledge of the band from the beginning to the present and so he's so well versed in 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 what we do and we knew the only our only has reservation even was that we were, we're saying to ourselves even like gee we hope it looks like an edgar wright film that this isn't one of the outliers where he does a a dull, boring documentary and then goes back to making really cool narrative <laughs> movies. And so that was our only uh, thought, it, you know, that, well, how is he going to make, you know, a documentary be as kinetic and visually exciting um, as his other films? So, so, it, but trusting him that he, you know, would do, a, you know, an amazing job with it. We, you know, we kind of purposely stayed, stayed back from that, from the um, giving our input. I mean, our, our input, I think, was just in the fact that we were interviewed at length during the film to be used, you know, bits of it to be used on on screen. And, um, and you know, a lot of the situations that we were filmed in were Edgar's ideas, like the one, one time we're being filmed on the only rainy day ever in Los Angeles uh, where he wants to go to the beach where we went when we were really young. And it's happens to be raining on that day so we're wearing overcoats and carrying these surfboards on the beach all bundled up and stuff so but he wanted to shoot that scene regardless of the weather because he thought it would be uh you know it would be amusing (laughs) 
either either way and and so things like that it just uh you know he he proposed things on the spot and we you know we 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 like his sensibility and he he always thought that what he does is is so in line with spark's sensibility that there really isn't kind of a any sort of conflict in how to construct a documentary about about us mm, absolutely um you mentioned uh, a few moments ago russell um the this idea that some people have of there being kind of particular golden periods or albums within the sparks catalog yet there are you know there's a huge array of records there do you feel like some of the perhaps less obvious ones are kind of unfairly overlooked you know when you obviously people go to kimono my house number one in heaven those kind of records angst in my pants are there others that you feel like actually when especially when when looking back over your career for something like this and i know when you did the 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 tour where you played every record um consecutively you know do, do you ever look back and think actually there's a record there that didn't quite get its dues or wasn't appreciated in the way that we thought maybe it, it should have been? Or do you feel like the ones that people point to are generally good markers of the various permutations of the band? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think there are ones that are overlooked. And, and fortunately, during the documentary, uh, quite a few of the artists that speak um, speak out point that out. Like uh, one instance is Flea from the Chili Peppers, talking really eloquently about an album that's really gone under the radar, uh, introducing Sparks. It was the eighth album that we did. And that album just, you know, it kind of had almost zero visibility, but he's speaking just very passionately about the, about the album. This is a fucking cool record, you know? And so it, it sort of means a lot more when, when in the documentary, in fact, when there's other artists, speaking about those albums that kind of didn't um, have sort of the mass uh, visibility that some of the other albums did. And it kind of makes us feel really good that, well, that, that there's other people in the creative community, especially that feel that way about those albums that slip by, but also to hear them speaking out about that. And then hopefully for people that go to see the documentary, they'll, they'll see that it, um, you know, most of the albums are treated fairly, kind of in a in a you know in a um, you know in a way where there isn't one that's you know treated more uh, like well this is the good one this is not the good one, and to hear these artists you know they're talking about an album like Big Beat that also kind of you know slipped through the cracks um, in in certain in certain places, and so um, it meant a lot just to hear other artists speaking about those albums that it wasn't only the albums kimono and number one in heaven that in fact there were other albums and we you know we do feel that there were albums that kind of slipped through the cracks and then seeing it in the context of the documentary you kind of you it's kind of almost it's sort of is one of the points that's treated really during the documentary is sort of like well what is um what's how do you how do you um qualify success is success by defined by how many albums you've sold or success defined by, um, you know, what you feel is still artistically really valid that you did something that you, you stand by as a creative piece of work. And, and so in that sense, I, that, that um, there were a lot of albums that did uh, do still, you know, we feel, you know, slipped under the radar, but we're really happy that, in the context of this movie, they've been uh, 
they've been uh, kind of featured. Mm. Does it feel like a, a strange process for you to to look back and reflect in this way? Because you've been so prolific over the years and everything has always been about the next record and moving forward and new ideas and all kinds of unusual projects, you know, whether it be film, you know, film scores, you know, whatever it may be. Is it is it a strange thing to, to take a look back over a, a prolonged period like this? And how do you feel when doing that? Is it something you're comfortable doing or are you much much more comfortable kind of thinking about the next project, the next thing that you're going to start work on? Well, I mean, our usual mindset is really just to kind of try to erase what we've done as much as we can in the past and just kind of focus on what we're doing. And I think it's one of the keys to us being able to do music that we feel is still alive at this at this at this point and, and still feeling like we have music that uh, where we don't exactly know where it's going all, all the time. But, but in the hands of Edgar, you know, we, we felt comfortable with that because it, it's done with the, with the perspective of, of leading up to, to what is happening now. And so, you know, it, it, it really is a tidy kind of summation of, of all of this time. And I think, you know, as as even just in a purely crass way, for people that don't know about Sparks, it's a way to find out. You know, in two hours and twenty minutes, what has happened over over the past decades. But you know, the fact that it does kind of uh, culminate in you know concerts that we've done fairly recently uh, in in Mexico City and London and and Tokyo and Los Angeles where, you know, Edgar was kind enough to bring along his crew and, and shoot those shows that, that kind of put things into a perspective where it isn't that we're dwelling on the past. So, you know, it, if, if it were only that we would have felt that it was kind of seeing us in the wrong kind of way, but, but, you know, we're, we're proud of what we've done. It's just that, that in order to work in the way that we do, we kind of, really have to try to put all that aside and, and just concentrate on the present time. Mm. How, how has your working relationship developed down the years? You know, it's a, a huge amount of music that's been made in 50 years. Do you, do you still write and create in the same way that you always have done? Or, or has that changed just with time or with technology, things like that? Do you, do you still go about writing music and approaching starting a record in the same way that you always have done or is that something that's changed a little bit for you down the years i mean it's actually expanded in recent years and just through technology in some in some ways i mean we still write in the way in with some songs with in the way that we wrote you know since the beginning where you just sit down and plot away and something happens some days and something and nothing happens other days and you but you come up with a, a song and then you take it in and and record it. And in, in the past, it was always taking it into a very expensive studio where you had to be sure and that also that the arrangement was fairly determined before. But now that we've had our own studio for probably 20 years, it it's it's really helped me at least where there's there's kind of an expanded way of, of writing where we can write in that kind of way but also that in the studio we can just kind of sometimes go in and not have any idea where things are going to go and just, you know, come up with a musical background that can lead 
to a, a vocal line. So, you know, there, there are more possibilities uh, with the technology that's happened uh, within the past couple of decades. And, you know, Russell has become really proficient in a, in a, as an engineer. And so we feel really complete in a, in a writing sense where, where if you get stuck in one kind of way, then you, you have kind of another way of, of writing that, so you don't kind of ever freeze up. Yeah. I mean, how, how have you kept that relationship so fresh as well? Because, you know, it's the two of you that are at the core of this band and it's not, not only such a prolific output, but it's a very eclectic output as well, constantly changing and, and, and evolving your sound. And, you know, typically speaking, you know, when, when you get bands that are centered around siblings, they tend to, they, they either tend not to last that long or there'll be periods where there are long breaks needed and things like that. How have you been able to, to, to keep, to keep the, 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 not just, you know, the, the working relationship, but your, your partnership as songwriters and artists. So, so fresh and, and not allowed and, you know, basically allowed it to just keep going. How, how is, what's the secret to that? I guess is the, the, the center of that question. Well, you know, one of the, the most important thing is we're just passionate about what we do and have real pride in what we do. And have had that since day one and, and that we constantly want to see how, you know, how we can, you know, do pop music in a fresh way and hopefully modern way, um, you know, that doesn't sound like it's coming from a band with a 25 album long history. And that's the most satisfying thing for us that, and we both are kind of on the same page. It's almost like this mission. And, and, and it, it's something that the documentary has, um, has brought about that, that there's a lot of new fans, a lot of people that haven't even heard of sparks, uh, which is, which is totally fine. But then they see the documentary and they, and then all of a sudden they go, God, how did I, I, I'm a fan of music. I just didn't know about Sparks. And they go and they they actually investigate the catalog. And and from their perspective, it's like it's um, <clears throat> brand new music that doesn't really sound like it's of a certain era. And so we, you know, we kind of really, really work hard at just at just trying to do music that that even if someone picks up right now on the band and they hear our latest album, that they would. Um, think this is a band that doesn't have a 25 album long history that, and that's not always the the case, you know, a lot of times when, you know, you know, when bands have a long history that either they've had so much commercial success that they kind of just tend to become lazy, you know, and not feel the compulsion to have to do, keep proving themselves with new albums that they can constantly tour and just rely on their, their, their back fame um, or else bands just don't have the longevity that we've had and they kind of fall by the wayside. So Sparks is in this really unique situation and we, we appreciate that. And I think that's what helps keep the bond uh, there and keeps things moving forward. Yeah. I am. Um, I, I wanted to do a kind of quick visit through, through five of your records and it's not necessarily five that are five entry points to the band or anything like that, but just five records that I feel a kind of, key records in the sparks canon and just to hear what your kind of thoughts are on them now and what your recollections of making those records are just a, a little bit of a kind of brief history of 
what was going on at the time and um, how you feel about them now. So I just wanted to start with the first album, self-titled album, which is also known as Half Nelson. At the time, what can you tell us about how that record came together? When was, how long had you been working on that before it was released? And what are your thoughts when you, when you hear that record back now? Well, when we, when we were at UCLA University in Los Angeles, we, we kind of formed a, an unofficial band. Well, it was official, I suppose, with, with Earl Mankey. So it was the three of us. And rather than playing live, we, we just sat in his bedroom with his reel-to-reel uh, wall and sack recorder and, and made these, these, kind of, these demos. And, and it was kind of, we, didn't, we weren't having to please an audience because unlike most bands at the time that were starting, we weren't starting off in a live setting. And so we had this set of demos and we took them to everybody, uh, all the record company people, and nobody responded except for Todd Rundgren. And, and, you know, he's kind of a key part of the documentary as well. But we were forever indebted to Todd. And, and when we recorded that first album, Todd didn't want to kind of, uh, soften the edge, the the edges, the rough edges. He he only wanted to make it sound better. But as far as the general sensibility, he he was pushing to keep that kind of uh, eccentricity. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a fascinating record that, and it's a really interesting starting point I think for Sparks, particularly when you see where you would go with the next few records. Um, so the, the next album I wanted to mention, which may seem like an obvious one, uh, but is Kimono My House. And I w- was wondering how you felt when you were making that album, because it feels like a, a distinct leap between the first two records and that, just the, the writing, the the sound of, the, of that album. It feels like a a key, not, you know, not just that as an album itself, but as a period of progression, it feels very vital to me in, in, when listening back. Was there anything at the time when you were making that album that you felt, okay, this is a this is a big leap forward, we've, we've made a huge stride with this, or were you not really aware of that until after it had come out and then received the, the reception that it did? Yeah, I think we, we, we weren't aware of what it would be, and I think that was probably why it, it came across being so fresh-sounding as we approached it really, you know, naively we'd gotten this offer to come to England to kind of fulfill our dream of being a, a British band, actually, and, and, you know, we came to England, there were no songs before we came here. Island just had faith in the two of us. And if we would reform with a band, a British band, they felt that it, we, it, it could work, but it wasn't, wasn't based on specific songs. It was just based on this idea and that, that Muff Winwood, as he talks about in the documentary, he really liked um, the image of the band. And then he, he really, liked what he had heard of the band previous to that, to, to the Kimono album. So in any case, you know, Ron, fortunately, uh, came up with, with a song, well, a whole album, but a song like uh, This Town Ain't Big, for, Big Enough for the Both of Us, and it just, it kind of uh, launched everything. Yeah, I mean, similar question, I guess, for Number One in Heaven. That was, again, a, a, a huge step sonically, musically. Um, was Was that an album where you felt you like you wanted to make a statement. Was that a statement record of we want to make a real shift from where we've been before? It was because it was a hugely influential album that it was, uh, you know, it, so many big artists have cited that as a major influence for them. 
Yeah, well, we always, yeah, we always just get really uh, itchy to, you know, be trying new things. And so we had heard I Feel Love and thought, oh, that sounds so amazing. And what if we were to place what we were doing in that kind of cold, icy, electronic, dancey sort of um, environment, but having, you know, Ron's songs Ron, in the lyrics and my singing, but in that other framework. And so fortunately... Uh, through a bunch of weird happenings, we we did end up meeting Giorgio Moroder, and he really wanted to work with the band. We were the first band that he ever worked with, and normally it had been you know just solo artists that he could kind of you know mold more in, in the way he saw. But this was now kind of almost more of a democracy, which was unusual for for Giorgio uh, to be working in. But we so we all went in that project the same way as Kimono, kind of more naively not knowing what was going to be coming up, what was going to be the result of it. But um, it was something that in in retrospect now we would think, oh, it was the uh, kind of Bible for the whole synth duo sort of uh, style of, of, of music and in a band that can be just two people and doesn't have to have a uh, a traditional band with five guitar, you know, five with guitar players and bass players and drummers at the studio in essence can be the band. So it really did in, in the end kind of uh, set this template for uh, a lot of, a lot of music to come. Did, was it an enjoyable experience making that album? And did you enjoy working with Giorgio Moroder? Yeah. Yeah. No, Giorgio is a, he's both really amazing person. We like him personally a lot. We still are, we still are in touch with him all the time. And, but then, you know, even more important that he, you know, his whole creative world was such a, a unique, um, you know, a unique world. And, and so it was really special to to work with him on that, on number one in heaven. And just also that he was so, you know, passionate about what we were doing and what we could bring to the project. So, yeah, it was, you know, amazing experience with him. Excellent. Um the fourth record I wanted to uh, touch on um, is the FFS record with Franz Ferdinand, because that was an album that was such a joy to listen to and such a relief. I remember when I first heard it, because on paper it sounded like an absolutely fantastic coming together of artists. You know, I, I thought this this could be absolutely amazing. And then there was that slight worry of what if this is something that becomes like a, as a fan, it could be like a self-indulgent project. And how how is this going to work? You know, getting too two two bands together to to make an album so collaboratively but it it does work very seamlessly it it really does feel like a a coming together of bands it doesn't feel like okay that half of the album is sparks this half of the album is franz ferdinand it it, it's a real collaboration how what was it like making that album was were, were there any points where it felt like is this something that could be a lot of fun for us in the studio but might not come together fully as a record or were you kind of sure early on actually we've we've got a really good process here you know how did how did you how did you go about making that record so seamless no i mean we 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 just thought that it was going to be so interesting i mean like you mentioned it could could have gone the other way and been just like a good idea good concept but but the passion for both bands both the guys in france ferdinand and for sparks was to really make this work and to make it not be a you know a just a good idea and then it, it falls flat when you actually hear the music and so we we spent a lot of time in LA writing songs and 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 Alex and his his crew you know spent a lot spent time doing songs in 
over in this part of the world. And then we would send files back and forth. And, you know, we didn't know even from the start there was going to be an album. We thought maybe it'd be a single even, and that would be it. But then it was, the process was so, you know, fun and it was, and it was proving to be really creatively good. We all thought. And, and so, um, so it just kind of progressed into an album and then went the next stage to saying, Hey, we should even be, touring with this because we all liked each other a lot and and it just seemed right and a good idea to do it as a tour so it it it, it could have gone either direction but fortunately every everybody involved was so passionate to make it work and it's a lot of <clears throat> takes a lot of credit from you know from both bands to you know want to kind of submerge your own ego slightly in the cause of trying to make something you know really good as a as a new entity so that it's a pretty rare situation, but we, uh, we all think it, it, you know, turned out really, really great. Excellent. Um, and the uh, fifth album uh, I, would, I would just like to touch upon was the last album, A Steady Drip, 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 which um, I thought was a, a, an absolutely fantastic record um, and felt like um, it felt like a, a natural uh progression i think from hippopotamus which was also an incredibly kind of unique album in the you know within the sparks uh, catalog um what can you tell us about how a steady drip 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 came together because that was released last year you know during lockdown um was the was the making of that album hampered in any way by that or had it already been completed and made and was just released during that time what what was the background to to the making of that album yeah well, i mean it had already been made prior to the to the pandemic and we were really lucky that it you know we that it was finished uh, and ready to go and the only question was whether you know some artists have debated well about getting the timing right hoping that there would be a more receptive audience if the pandemic would just sort of gracefully go away but we felt that um, we wanted to really, we felt just the opposite that, that um, you know, that we didn't want to penalize our fans, um, especially during that period. And we thought that it, the album should come out, you know, during the pandemic and whatever the commercial ramifications, that was just, you know, that was a side issue. And so we came out with the album during that time and we're really happy that we did. And it did, you know, the album did really well and, and people, you know, people that are fans of the band have said that, you know, kind of was an uplifting thing for them to have, especially during that, that time period. Um, and the only, the only odd thing is that we weren't able to tour with the album, obviously because of the pandemic. So we're going to be touring next year during the spring um, in the UK and the rest of Europe and also North America too. So, so uh, finally we'll be able to perform songs from that album live next spring. We really felt energized just in writing those kinds of songs because we we had been working kind of simultaneously on the Annette film where we're working in a narrative musical approach where where there's kind of a a two-hour seamlessness to what you're doing and so so it's it really feels like you're kind of going on to something new when you're working with again with three and four minute songs so I think there's there's kind of a uh, uh, a liveliness to the the songs that partly is due to having worked in another musical form. Mm. 
On the uh, subject of films and specifically music documentaries again, I was wondering if there are any music documentaries that you are both particularly fond of. I, I think the documentary feature-length documentaries have become a lot more popular, it seems, at least in a mainstream sense in recent years. There's been all manner of highly acclaimed award-winning documentaries and a number of them around music and, and artists. And I was wondering, yeah, are, are there any that have stood out to you, any that, that you cite as real favourite music documentaries? Well, well, this might seem kind of uh, outside of the the topic, but uh, there there's a documentary about Thelonious Monk, Straight No Chaser, that I, that that's really extraordinary as revealing uh, of his personality because his his playing and his music is so idiosyncratic, and you through the documentary you learn learn that that his the reason that it is 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 partially just because of the person that he is, and it 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 kind of is slightly tragic, but then also really inspiring at the at the same time. So I I really I really love that documentary. And also, don't don't look back. I mean, it's all again. It's an obviously an old an old documentary, but it still really holds up. I've seen it recently, and Bob Dylan is uh, he kind of realized what a uh, treasure he is and was a treasure from the very beginning. Um, and it's just a really, you know, still holds up as a really amazing documentary. There's another documentary too, that um, was edited by the same editor who edited the Sparks brothers film for Edgar Wright. Uh, it's a documentary on Ronnie Scott's uh, club in, in London. It's, it's a really amazing documentary too. It has, you know, it's a real good, sort of time capsule of the that whole era in Soho with the with with uh Ronnie Scott's club which we we had heard about we knew about but we didn't know all the specifics so this really takes a deep dive into it and has this amazing performances by Buddy Rich and mm. stuff and, and it's really fascinating as well and so uh yeah yeah with I know with uh you know with the Sparks brothers um it has a very distinct aesthetic it has that edgar wright feel to it it isn't the conventional uh you know behind the music style uh rock doc you know it's not it's not one of those films do you personally like seeing those kind of films yourself though where it's uh you know i'm thinking of uh in, in recent years some of the uh, documentaries that have come out things like uh the amy winehouse documentary there was a kurt cobain documentary that came out as well and that one particularly you know, it was a really, really kind of unflinching look at the the person behind the art and all that kind of thing. Is is that something that interests you as music fans, or do you prefer documentaries that are slightly less involved in the person and their private lives and are a little bit more focused, perhaps, on the art? Well, I think that I mean, it, in a selfish kind of way, I'm attracted to music documentaries who's about people whose music I'm interested in, and so those those two examples that you mentioned are people that I, I really am passionate about their music. I also like the Bee Gees documentary, you know, a, a lot based on the fact that I really like the Bee Gees. I'm not, it's hard for me to judge it in a filmic kind of way, especially because I, that, that music does something to me, but, but as far as the Amy Whitehouse documentary and the Kurt, Kurt Cobain one those those ones you know 
there are also artists where, where their kind of life and personality were such a, an integral part of, of what they were musically that I think those, those documentaries were, were really, you know, fascinating and revealing to, to somebody who really likes their music. It, it's hard for me sometimes to enjoy a music documentary about a, a musician whose music I'm not interested mm. in. I'm trying to uh, offhand. I can't think of an example of, of any that I that I that I did. But but just the odd, the odd thing is that the interesting thing is that we we've gotten a lot of early feedback, and there's a lot of people that say, well, they they weren't particularly interested in Sparks music, um, and or that they just hadn't heard of Sparks, but they were curious about an Edgar Wright film. So they've gone to see it, and then they've become fans of the band. So that's that's kind of another fits into another area where where people or some are just uh, you know not really um, passionate about going into seeing the the film, mm-hmm. but coming out of it uh, being uh, convinced that there was that that, that it's uh, that their feelings were different than what they had originally thought when they went into it. So that's. A, so that's something that we feel that Edgar really did a, a masterful job in kind of, um, you know, preaching to the non-converted even, as well mm. as to the converted. Yeah. And even as far as like Bob Dylan, when we were first growing up, there was always, there were there was the rock kind of people and then the folk people. So we had kind of a bias actually against people like Bob Dylan as, as you know, as good as what they were doing, they were still folk and they were, the enemy. And so, so, you know, it's taken when, when Dylan went kind of electric, that was kind of when we joined the the club. And uh, so, but that documentary kind of shows it's a rare case where I'm willing to admit that I may have been wrong in my musical judgment early on, because, because you, you can see that, that he's always been extraordinary. And I think that it's a, you know, that, it's a real showcase for that that yeah. the, the documentary. Absolutely, and I, I think that's always the hallmark of a great documentary is when it can be something that it could be about a person or a subject that you don't have any prior knowledge or interest in, and then you can still come away feeling like I, I really enjoyed that. I found that a really fascinating experience. You know, that's always uh, yeah, I, th- I think the sign of a great documentary, isn't it? Um, so lastly, yeah, you said that you have um, plans to tour uh, in the UK and um, did you say um, in the US as well? Was that yeah. for uh, next year? Um, yeah. When when will you be arriving in the UK? When when would yeah, you be? Yeah, we're, uh, we're starting starting the tour in in the US. We're we're actually playing. Uh, it's really nice for us. Two two nights in at Disney Hall in Los Angeles uh, as the start of the tour, and then we'll be going all around the U S and Canada and then coming immediately after that to, uh, to, to Europe and to the UK. And so it'll be, it's sometime in April, I believe that we're in, in the UK. I think we're doing five, can't remember five or six shows in, in the UK in, in any case. And so, um, yeah, we're looking forward to it because after having had two aborted, uh, tours, uh, due to the pandemic that hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully this one will, uh, this one will stick. It's still, uh, whatever that is, seven months away or something. So, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully things will be, uh, better by then. Yeah. Let, let's certainly hope so. Um, 
Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, an absolute joy talking to you. I'm a huge fan and I absolutely love the film as well. I thought it was a, a, an outstanding documentary. Um, and I look forward to seeing Annette when, uh, when that's available as well. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep it. Thank you. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.